I came back with lunch and it was raining and the whole house was murdered. Everybody is dead. He reads everything. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. I suspect it was about to become an embarrassment, as you are. You're listening to the Stones Unturned Podcast. Your host, Professor Thomas Henry Horan. He reads everything. Hello, and thank you for plugging in to the Stones Unturned Podcast. There are a lot of great true crime and conspiracy podcasts out there. The Stones Unturned Podcast is cracking homicides, cold cases, and conspiracies with new evidence provided by victims, witnesses, investigators, and you, our listeners. Don't be left out. Subscribe today for free to the Stones Unturned podcast on YouTube. In this episode, we're going to take a close look into the investigation of the murder of a young bride named Arliss Perry, who was killed inside the Stanford Memorial Church on the campus of Stanford University on the night of October 12, 13, 1974. We're honored to have as our special guest on the podcast this episode, William Ramsey of William Ramsey Investigates. William, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, You live in that area, right? Well, I grew up in Palo Alto, so I'm very familiar with uh, Stanford University. I used to spend a lot of time there. And you know, you're pretty familiar with this case. Very familiar. I actually wrote a an article about it uh, a while back um, because I wanted to reference, you know, my kind of firsthand knowledge of that. The title of the article is The Process, Crowley Moss and the Unsolved Murder of Arliss Perry, which I published, I think, in 2014. Well, let's get right to that real quick. Alistair Crowley, this famous occultist and Satanist, um, he's one of the most famous, probably. His birthday is October 12th, and so his followers celebrate October 12th as Crowley Moss, which is sort of a play on Christmas, Christ Moss. They celebrate Crowley Moss, and she was apparently murdered just after midnight, the night of October 12th. Right, that's correct. That's the one of the occult markers of this uh, crime, and including some very other very... Uh, strange elements to her death. And the investigation into this murder raises an awful lot of questions as well. <laughs> sure, sure it does. It raises a lot of questions on why it wasn't solved. And then supposedly it was solved uh, in 2018. Um, and they just tidily wrapped that up as well. So that's right. also another kind of curiosity. Well, let's let's review a little background real quick. This is the San Francisco Bay Area. We've had the Zodiac murders and these letters and cryptograms being mailed to the San Francisco newspapers that have all this occult symbolism, and there's this coded message that when it's decoded, the author uh, describes this belief. He's in some kind of killer cult, and the victims he kills will be his slaves in paradise, and so on and so forth, and that kind of fizzles out. And then you get this next string of cult murders. They're called the zebra murders, but they're really the death angel murders. There's this uh, extreme splinter Islamic cult, black Muslims who are killing white Christians in the San Francisco Bay Area. 
apparently with the intent of triggering this race war that will bring about the end of civilization. And, of course, that immediately reminds us of Charles Manson and his kooky ideas. Then that fizzles out towards 1974. September 11th, of all days, 1973, there's a Stanford physics student named David Levine who stabbed 12 times in the back and once in the chest. Now, that's 13 stab wounds. There's no robbery. He lived in the dorms in this area called Escondido Village uh, near the university. And at the time, investigators think this might be part of the zebra slash death angel murders. But that murder's never been solved, right, David Levine? Right, no. I, I was not aware of that. Yeah, but uh, that's pretty. that has all the occult markers, markers as well. In February 13th, 1973, we have the murder of Leslie Perloff who's found near her car. Her body's found, I don't think it's in the car, in the Palo Alto Hills, which are kind of southwest of the college. A lot of rich people live up in those hills, including the Folgers, the the Folger Coffee Dynasty. And that murder goes unsolved for 40-some-odd years. And then March 24th, 1974, we have the murder of Janet Taylor. She's the daughter of Stanford's football coach, and I've been trying to find out if they were living in the old Folger mansion, exactly where they lived in that neighborhood. When, when Abigail Folger's murdered in 69, part of the Manson family brouhaha, they move out of that mansion, and Peter builds a new mansion to live in, and I don't know who they rented it to, and I was wondering if the Taylors lived there. That murder goes unsolved for 40-some-odd years. And then October 1974, on Crowley Moss, we have this obviously ritualistic, satanic murder of Arliss Perry in this church. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a violent era, wasn't it? Lots of murders. Right, and a lot of bizarre cult activity attached to so many of these murders. And Stanford University itself, it's founded the Stanford family, these old-school Freemasons, um, the church itself is basically a Masonic church. It's now it's a it's a multi-denominational interfaith facility right. there on the campus. But there's this deep Masonic uh, uh, legacy to it, and some of the Stanfords were really into this mystical Freemasonry, and that's why Stanford's always been the home of like these. The, the Stanford Research Institute and these parapsychology researchers and things like that, the Esalen Institute. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Is it Esalen or Esalen or? I think it's Esalen. Okay. But that's, yeah, that's farther down, kind of closer to Carmel. But uh, no, there was, SRI is, has uh, an incre- incredible campus. But yeah, you're right. There's all kinds of mystical, you know, parapsychology things going on at Stanford. I actually grew up with somebody who was a, a sleep um, professor at Stanford, and I mean, they took it had all kinds of crazy experiments, even back in the eighties. You know, right? Have people overnight diagnose them, you know, all kinds of stuff. And you have the headquarters of the North American Rosicrucians are right there. That's San Jose, correct? That's correct. And they have a really cool museum. Did you ever go to that museum where they've reconstructed an Egyptian yeah. temple? Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. They used to take it down there. There's actually an Alistair Crowley tie to that because he knew uh, the, the the Rosicrucian guy uh, sometime in the early 20th century. He was friends with him, and, and apparently he might have even owned some property in San Jose. 
Crowley did. So we got all this weirdness going on in the Bay Area. We have this murder. Now, one of the things that interests me, and I've got some considerable experience with this, with so-called unsolved murders, and you look into it, and it becomes obvious the cops knew who it was all along, and they're pretending that it's not solved. In this Arliss Perry murder, now her husband is a second-year pre-med student at Stanford. And they've, they got married over the summer, and she recently moved there to be with him. And they're a young married couple. They've only been married a few weeks. Very Christian. I'm sorry? From North Dakota, correct? Right. They're from just outside Bismarck, North Dakota. And very religious. She's, she's very Christian, very religious. And according to him, according to Bruce, the husband... They're walking home from the library or someplace, and they get over this silly newlywed argument over this pressure in their spare tire. And Arliss supposedly tells Bruce, well, I want to go to the church and I pray and I, before they close, because they usually close at midnight, and I'll be home later. I just, just forget this argument, and I'll go do some praying. That's what he tells police later. At 3 a.m., he calls the police and says, I'm worried about my wife. She hasn't come home. And last I heard, I saw her, she was headed for the church. So the police go, they go around the church, all the doors are locked, so they don't know where she is. And if, around 5.35, the security guard, Steve Crawford, finds a door that's been not been broken into the church, but someone was locked inside the church and broke out, apparently. And he goes and he searches the church, and in the main chapel in the back row... Behind a pew, he finds this muti- murdered and mutilated body of Arliss Perry. Now, this is the story he tells police. Right. And he had told police that he'd locked up the church at 12 o'clock like normal, and that a few people, apparently he chased some people out, you know, tell them it's closing time, we have to close down the church, and Arliss was there, and there were several other people there, and all of these people come forward to give statements to police, except one. They all agree there was this sandy-haired, that's kind of like a dirty blonde color, young man who was right there with them, and he never comes forward and gives a statement to police. And Crawford's story about checking to church at 2 a.m. doesn't add up, and police fairly quickly suspect him of being involved in this crime, but there's a, I don't know which detail to go into first. Um, now, Bruce Perry, when they go to the Perry apartment, he's got a blood all over his shirt, right? <laughs> right, right. And he tells them he had a nosebleed. Right. And I guess the blood on the shirt does not match Arliss's blood type, but, you know, he could have been punched in the nose while his wife struggled for her life or something like this. That might explain why he has a bloody shirt. Um, and so, apparently, Arliss was locked inside the church with her killer from midnight to, to about 5.30 or sometime before then, whenever the last time... Because police had been there about 3.30 and all the doors were locked. So Arliss and her killer or killers had been locked inside the church for over three hours. Now, one of the first things they do, this is Arliss's funeral. The day of Arliss's funeral, the undersheriff, it's Santa Clara County, right? Yes. 
Santa Clara County Under Sheriff Tom Rosa. Now, in a lot of California counties, the under sheriff is he's more politician than cop. But he gives this press conference and he's trying to poo-poo these rumors that there's something ritualistic or satanic about Arliss's murder. He says there's absolutely nothing to suggest that. It's just a murder that happened to take place in a church. And that's funny for him to say because the physical evidence points in the exact opposite direction. Right. Agreed. And But, I mean, a lot of times police officers and people in law enforcement deliberately cover up facts about the case to, you know, not, not to, for a variety of purposes, really. Right. They can be good reasons and there can be some not so honest reasons. True. So that, in addition to, right, it turns out there's a completely different group of witnesses who say a sandy haired young man, and the descriptions are pretty much identical, had come to visit Arliss in the law office where she worked. Was that the day of the murder? Was that the day before the murder? No, my understanding is that was sometime before, I think the day or the day before the murder, she went to Blaze Valentine and Klein in. Okay, and... Right, and she and they just and they apparently have this really serious, very grave conversation of some kind, but nobody overhears the conversation. And Arliss is really upset, and the guy leaves. And to me, here's another red flag you've got two completely different sets of witnesses describing the exact same potential suspect in close contact with Arliss around the time of her murder. And they don't even bother producing a composite sketch and circulating it in the newspaper saying, if you've seen this man, we'd like to talk. We've got some questions. They don't even do that. Right. And between that and telling people, oh, this has nothing to do with occultism. Well, if somebody at home is listening to this press conference and says, oh, I thought maybe Joe might have done it because he's in this kooky cult, but they say it's not cult-related, so I guess I won't call the cops and tell them about Joe. Right? There's kind of this pattern of not wanting help from the public to solve this crime, which unsurprisingly, goes officially unsolved for 40-some-odd years. Right. Yeah, no, it's very unusual. Strange. Because when they find the body, she's been stabbed in the back of the skull with an ice pick. She's been sexually assaulted with one or two candles from the altar of the church. And there's blood between her legs in addition to being behind her head. And they find... Her blue jeans, which have been taken off, and they're laid like her, her legs are kind of in a V shape, and then her her jeans, I know I'm not very good describing this verbally, but they're laid so that it's like two two V's with their legs crossed against each other. So it makes kind of like a diamond shape with the little legs sticking right. out. And in the middle of this there's this little pool of blood, and they also find semen. They find semen on her jeans. They find semen apparently in this little puddle, and there's some semen on a on a kneeler. Uh, people, who are, if you go to a Catholic church or something, the things you can kneel on when you pray. And this configuration matches absolutely perfectly the symbol of Crowley's own little cult, his AA personal cult. And right, it looks it's obvious that whoever did this was thinking of. And it's and it happens on Crowley's birthday. There just doesn't seem to be any room for doubt. This is very specifically a Crowley-esque ritual murder. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that 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 kind of uh, symbolism of the star, whether it's up and down 
you know, I think in my article, I, I likened it to the universal hexagram or the Masonic square and compass. And uh, almost very similar, if not exact, to the word war that was carved into the body of Leno Libianca, Libianca by Charles Tex Watson um, in the Manson murders. So this is the same exact symbolism. Right. Um, and yet the police are publicly telling people, well, we don't want any tips based on any of that nonsense. Don't even call us. Yeah. And the crime goes unsolved. Now, it turns out this Steve Crawford, now his brother, Bill, was longtime police officer of Mountain View Police Department, which is just across the street from Palo Alto. These are two little towns in this county. And is it true that Steve had once been a police officer, or what did he do before he got that job at the... I, I'm not familiar with that. I don't know. Okay. Um, and so he, the police kind of hound him off and on for years. He's arrested in 1992. He has stolen tens of thousands of dollars of artifacts and artwork from the museums on campus he's supposed to be guarding. Um... But at the time of the murder, they find a palm print on the candle that was used to assault Arliss. And that palm print doesn't match Crawford's palm prints. And they had done, they could do tests. They didn't have DNA tests yet, but at the time of the murder, 74, they'd done some blood typing and things. And apparently the semen that they had found, at least some of the semen they found, didn't match uh, Crawford or Bruce Perry. So that's why these two guys are not arrested, you know, or, or pursued further for this murder. Their blood type doesn't match the semen, and their palm prints don't match the palm print on the candle. But they apparently develop no other leads, and they have no leads in these other murders that take place either. So they sort of have excuses for not solving these crimes, but then they're doing an awful lot of things to kind of discourage the crimes from being solved. Now, we fast forward to the summer of 2018, and Santa Clara Sheriff's Office suddenly announces they have DNA. Well, they, they've, they've gotten close to arresting Steve Crawford in 2016, and he even goes so far as to write a suicide note, but he doesn't go through with it. Now, 2018, they get, maybe it's because he'd heard they were going to do DNA testing, or maybe 2016 is when they got his DNA samples or something. He writes a suicide note, doesn't go through with it. 2018, the DNA comes back that it does match semen that was found on Arliss's genes, for sure. And so they go to Crawford's apartment to arrest him, and, and of course he knows they're coming. And when they walk in the door, he's already got a pistol in his hand. And as soon as they open the door, he blows his own brains out. And this is what the, at least according to police. Right. And of course, dead men tell no tales, right? Right. I mean, it's a perfect way to kind of put the book, final book into the whole, the whole mysterious case. Except that we still don't know whose palm print that is. Now, here's, where, here's the third red flag, in my opinion. So they close the case. They close the Arliss Perry murder. This is a procedural thing. So when a case is closed, it doesn't mean they got a conviction, but it means that detectives, deputy district attorneys, you can no longer be spending department resources on this case. You'd have to have the case reopened. That's a procedural thing. So they close this case. And I think it's like within a day or two, they announce, oh, we got more DNA evidence in some other cold murder cases. 
And that's this John Arthur Gatrue. And apparently oh, his DNA matches from the crime scenes, uh, the murders of Leslie Perlov and Janet Taylor. Oh, I see. I see how this all comes together. Yeah. And so I ended up calling <laughs> uh, Santa Clara Sheriff's Office, speaking to a spokesperson. By the way, did you ever check Gatrue's palm print to the palm print you found on that candle? And the answer was, well, why would we? That case is closed. And I said, yeah, but right. you just closed that case a couple of days before you announced you had John Arthur Gutierrez's DNA, so I'm wondering why you didn't bother to check. What would it hurt to check? And they just refused, and of course they wouldn't answer any more questions. Because he, looking at, there are not very many photographs of John Arthur Gutierrez, but I think it's his yearbook picture. He very, very closely resembles that those two descriptions from two different sets of witnesses of the sandy-haired man who had been around Arliss Perry twice that week and was right there at the scene of the crime, and nobody ever saw him again. Right, and didn't he, didn't Gautreau live in that area? Wasn't he in Palo Alto or something like that? Well, he lived, he worked at the hospital on camp, the Stanford Memorial Hospital, oh, okay. gotcha. where... Bruce Perry worked part-time, obviously, and did things as a pre-med student. And it's a good possibility they knew each other, at least acquainted from work. And then Gertrude lived, um, he lived on Alma Street, 3500 block of Alma Street, which is just across the city limits from Mountain View. Um... And then he turns up, there's a lady in Hollywood who identifies him as the man who raped her, but, and, and he had this M.O. apparently choker, raping and choking and beating, when she was living on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood in the summer of 69, when the Manson family are crawling all up and down Sunset Boulevard. Wow. Then he turns up. He's living in Reno, Nevada at the time that Donna Lass disappears, who some people believe... I, I'm actually not convinced she has a, really a Zodiac victim. However, people have heard of Donna Lass. She goes missing and possibly connected to the Zodiac murders. Gertrude was living there then. And it turns out he's been living in Palo Alto. He becomes involved in commercial real estate. He's a Boy Scout leader. Uh, apparently molesting boys in the Boy Scouts and all these other connections. And he's about to be arrested for some something to do with real estate fraud or something. And he leaves and he goes and lives in Ohio for a few years until the statute of limitations expires. He comes back to the... It's not, the Palo, it's not Palo Alto, but it's in that area. It's the South Bay area. Um, right. I think he was in Hayward, right? Hayward? Yeah. That's right. Um... And so, you know, Santa Clara, why would we check his palm prints? Well, gosh, you, you, first of all, you know he murdered two other girls in that exact same location at that exact same right. period of time. And two... Right, where Perlop was found is less than a half a mile from the Stanford Memorial Church. That's right. I mean, it's not far. It's right on the edge of campus. It was Page Mill Road, Old Page Mill Road, I think, is where they found her body. And is that, that's pretty close, it's pretty close 
to the Folger Mansion, right? Well, they have two mansions now. There's one that's like a, it's like a horseback riding, or they have a stable announcement donated for for horseback riding for handicapped kids or something. Um, I keep bringing that up because p- potential motives for the the murder of of Abby Folger. Um, Manson supposedly had gone to Palo Alto just a couple days before Helter Skelter starts. Two girls were murdered there. Now, they do convict a guy for those murders. But he picks up this hitchhiker, and he drives her home to San Diego. He spends the night on her parents' lawn. He drives back to Los Angeles, back to the compound, and says, okay, tonight's the night. We start Helter Skelter, and they drive up to Cielo Drive and start wiping people out. And it's interesting. I think that the Folger Mansion is in Woodside, which is actually fairly close to... To Stanford, I mean, it's probably five miles from Stanford. Right. So, if if there's some kind of cult involving people, prominent people from that town, the murders of these kids might have something to do with their parents, for example. Now, this case kind of gets famous because Berkowitz starts telling people, like May Russell and others, but. Arliss Perry was hunted, stalked to Stanford and slain by this cult that he claims he's been tangled up in. Right. Like he wrote that in his own hand, right? Berkowitz did. Right. That's one of the few he actually wrote it down. Arliss Perry hunted, stalked, and slain. And he claims that he heard about it from this guy in the cult that they all called Manson Number Two. Right. And this Manson number two claimed to know maybe he'd even done the murder. And it's interesting because a lot of people, there's this guy, Bill Menser, that we suspect of being this Manson number two. But the funny thing is, the descriptions of Manson number two also tend to resemble this John Arthur Gatrue. Who, by the way, when he's in high school, uh, his father was an army chaplain and he, he went to high school in Germany. They were stationed uh, uh, in Frankfurt, Germany. Gatrue is convicted of abducting, strangling, raping, and murdering a girl while he lives in Germany. And he's paroled somehow, some way, and ends up back in the United States. And lo and behold, he's a laboratory technician at Stanford Memorial Hospital when these murders start. And that he's, you know, they're, they're positive he did at least some of these murders. Right. I mean, right. There was uh, DNA evidence, right? Right, they got his DNA from those other crime scenes. Um, apparently, it does not match any DNA from any semen at the Perry murder. But again, whose palm print is that on that candle? And they don't even seem to be terribly interested in finding out whose it is. And that suggests to me, at the time that they're looking for all these witnesses, are talking about this sandy-haired guy. The police doing everything they can to stop people from turning him in. It kind of suggests to me that somebody, somebody in the prosecutor's office or sheriff's office or some knew that guy. And knew he was probably guilty. Because it took 40-some-odd years to arrest him for any of these other murders. Right. I mean, it's incredible, really, that those two people were arrested back-to-back. You know? That right. Crawford and Gautreaux. That's the back-to-back for murders that happened, you know, a stone's throw from each other, half a mile from each other. Well, and they get... years later. Right. They get all this DNA back in one batch and they hurry up and they, they close the Arliss Perry case before they have to announce that they got Gertrude's DNA for the rest of these murders. And of course, Steve Crawford can't tell any tales because he's dead. Right. Wow. Did, um, 
did they prosecute, I mean, have they sentenced Gautreaux yet? Well, they're trying to pin as many murders on him as they can. There are other murders that he's a possible suspect for. There's a lady accuses him of rape. Um, and then that was, you know, another thrust of my question was, you're trying to print as many murders on him as you can because you don't want him getting off. You know, he beats one murder rap, you want to have some others. Why don't you check his palm print in the Arliss Perry case? What would happen? What roof would cave in if it turned out that John Arthur Gatrue participated in the murder of Arliss Perry? What would be so terrible if you found that out? And, of course, they don't want to talk about that. If it's true... Whether it's whether it's Peter Folger, who is he is just thick as thieves with the CIA and supporting these terrible military dictatorships in South America, where his coffee beans are coming from, um, and his daughter is murdered by the Manson family. Some people say by accident; it was accidental. She was there. We're going to get into that on the on the Stones Unturned podcast. Um, the actual possible motives for those murders. And you brought up, right, Lino LaBianca had this message carved into his stomach or his chest. More, right? But in a a very occult manner. Right. And it turns out that it's a period of, of time people have never really looked at very closely, but it is most likely that LaBianca knew Charles Manson way back in 1959, 10 years before Helter Skelter. 10 years before Helter Skelter. Manson is uh, pimping for a Hollywood producer. And he did some, uh, mostly television. He's a pretty prominent Hollywood producer. And they're, 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 they're prostituting these girls and making porno. And Charlie's the guy who goes out and procures these girls and, and, and keeps them in line. And it's during that exact same window of time that Lino Lombianca is busted for soliciting prostitution in Hollywood. Interesting. And then later that. on, Lino buys the house he and Rosemary live in. He buys that from his mother, and this guy named True uh, buys the house next door from his mother, and True uses this place as like, it's like a love nest, it's a party house, and probably getting blackmail on people there, and Manson spends a lot of time in that house. Etc, etc, etc. And so all of these people, right? Now, what is Arliss Perry doing being murdered in a satanic or Crowley-esque sacrifice a couple of weeks after she moves to Palo Alto, California. And the reason Berkowitz brings this up is because apparently when she lived in back home around Bismarck, this church work she's doing, she's proselytizing among these cult members, this satanic cult in Minot, right? Right. Her friends, like a lot of people agree, she's this born-again Christian, she's trying to convert these people. And, you know, we know uh, police there, you know, firmly believe this Phil Falco, this Barry DeSinko, this, um, the guy got crushed by a tree. Uh, Not Barry. What's his name? Berg. Jerry Berg. And John Carr are supposed to be the leaders of this cult in Minot, North Dakota. During that time that Arliss is growing up and trying to convert these people who are these Satanists. Now, there's this other weird twist to the case. When 
she goes there to be with Bruce, is it her parents or his parents who try to call them and they call information to get the phone number? I don't recollect that fact. I think it's I think it's Arliss because I, she writes a letter home to her parents saying. Or, or, or she writes a letter about Bruce's parents. They called information. There's a Bruce Duncan Perry, and they call that number, and it's not it's not Bruce Duncan Perry who's married to Arliss Perry. So apparently Arliss had called this number and straightened it out with these people because Arliss writes in the letter, yeah, it turns out he's not just Bruce Perry. He's not just Bruce D. Perry. He's Bruce Duncan Perry who recently got married, but his wife's not named Arliss. And a few days later, she ends up dead. And people like me, uh, <laughs> these shady private detective types who now do their own podcast, have pointed out back in the day that was a good way to get to track somebody down was to get a phone number in their name and create this confusion and wait for the person to call you. And you say, oh, we'll just swap contact information. And when people call, I can give them your phone number and address. Interesting. Because they were living in Escondido Village where this David Levine was murdered. So it does, there is that piece of evidence that someone was specifically trying to track her down days before she's murdered. Right, so that verifies Berkowitz's claim, right? To a great extent. Now, of course, you know, I, I take everything Berkowitz has ever said with a truckload of salt, but. Maury was pretty convinced that Berkowitz had really heard something about this because it wasn't necessarily a case that Berkowitz would have heard about it in any other way. Now, maybe May Brussel tipped him and said, hey, do you know anything about this murder of Arliss Perry? But it's interesting, you know, she comes from Bismarck, which is just across the river from Minot, and there's definitely this cult activity in Minot and dealing narcotics and things. Why would they murder Arliss? This cult, now, now, Maury Terry was convinced it was a branch of the process. Ed Sanders was convinced it was the Solar Lodge, which is a splinter group from the Pasadena OTO. Right. right. And what did they call their lodge in Pasadena? They had a name for that lodge. Agape. Agape. Agape Lodge. That's right. That's the one Jack Parsons and all these Hollywood people belong to. They're the only ones who are still paying dues for Crowley's living on till the day he dies. And But they'd had a lodge in the San Francisco area. Do you remember the name of that lodge? The OTO Lodge? I'm not familiar with that, no. They'd had one, because Crowley joined the one in Vancouver, and then they had one in San Francisco. And it's interesting because the leader of the San Francisco Lodge of the OTO said, we don't do sex magic at this lodge because it just seems to make people crazy. Like it's an odd criticism coming from inside the OTO to say, these people who practice the sex magic, it drives them crazy and we just don't do that here. And it, But it fizzles out. Right, it fizzles out, but the Rosicrucians, you know, they're going through a big membership drive and they get all this money in. I'm not accusing the Rosicrucians of being involved in this, but um, there are plenty of reasons to think this cult. Were, were there any, was there a bizarre string of murders and mutilations of dogs in Palo Alto at this time? I don't recollect. I don't recollect that. I, I do know that up in those hills, there are people, you know, when I was growing up, the rumors were you go up to the hills up above Stanford and the cult members would, would meet up there. 
and uh, people like Robert Anton Wilson were fairly close in Santa Cruz, and they would use this kind of, uh, what was the Summit Drive? You know, you could use the Summit Drive to basically come from Santa Cruz right up the, the top of these mountains and, and come down. You could literally drive down to the Folger Estate or Stanford, which are really right up Sand Hill Road. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff that was going on in my growing up. But, yeah, there was definitely a, some kind of cult. But as far as Crowley's concerned, I know that in his lifetime he traveled and started up OTO chapters in Detroit and had a, a main follower in Vancouver that he traveled to in his later years. But nothing to San Francisco, to my knowledge, and not no travel to Los Angeles either when he was, you know, past 50. Right, he didn't actually visit the the Agape Lodge in Pasadena, but they, because L. Ron Hubbard knew Crowley, and he had ripped off Jack Parsons for like ten or twenty thousand dollars. So he knows Jack Parsons, right. and he oh, and they Parsons, know each other very well. Yeah, right, exactly. He it's, ran off Jack Parsons' wife, so they know each other. They did rituals together. And even um, Hubbard's son said that a lot of Scientology is based upon Crowley's ideas. It just got rehashed or reformulated. But, you know, the whole initiatory structure going up the grades and all that stuff comes out of stuff that Crowley had compiled. Exactly. And this the Stanford, I think it's Leland Stanford and his wife, they found Stanford University. They build that church. Leland has... I think it's his brother. It might be a first cousin. I'm pretty sure it's his brother who lives in Australia who is much deeper into the occult than than Leland is. And he's one of the big reasons that they have this legacy of supporting all this supernatural research at Stanford. Oh, um, so it's possible. Yeah, yeah, so there could be cold activity going on, going way back to the late 19th century in that area for sure. Um yeah, it's really, it's actually very strange because I knew, like growing up, I knew an occultist who had a job at SRI. Like SRI isn't on campus, it's kind of, it's actually closer to Menlo Park, it's right on the border, I think on the Menlo Park side, but it's a huge campus and they're up to all kinds of strange stuff, all kinds of weird research. It's almost more like Hogwarts, really, than a, than a uh, some kind of austere, you know, ivory tower learning center. Right, it's kind of both. I mean, they kind of have this, you know, the Rosicrucians, you know, so supposedly people like Francis Bacon and Isaac Newton were Rosicrucians. They, that's how they were able to get access to these alchemical manuscripts and things like that. And the Stanfords, the Folgers, um, you know, going way back to the 17th century even, um, Freemasons and coming to the United States, coming to Australia, going to Asia, uh, starting commercial enterprises and bringing Freemasonry with them. Um, but Leland's brother in particular, and I think Leland's wife, that's how he met his wife is through these, uh, you know, and things like things like theosophy and, and free, you know, these were pretty, they were much more out in the open in the late 19th century, especially among middle class, upper middle class and upper class people. So, you know, Berkowitz and his buddies allege that this cult in Westchester County goes back, you know, even before World War II, going all the way back to Harold Untermeyer, right, who, 
he was some kind of druid or occultist. And so trying to find this, it's interesting because we, Stones Unturned Podcast, we've, we've uncovered this concrete evidence we're going to bring out soon. We're doing all this background first. Definitely, definitely links like the between the son of sam murders and then the murders that happened after that linking all that together linking it to members of the manson family brouhaha and they all seem to think this murder of arliss perry is really crucial and of all the murders now there had been this murder in the new york city area a double murder this is howard green and carol Marin, who police there are saying this some kind of ritual went on in this murder they don't even try to deny that and this supposedly had something to do with the Untermeyer Park cult that Berkowitz got himself tangled up in, and then Berkowitz is the one who's saying it's this it's this guy that they would bring in to do special murders, and everybody called him Manson Number Two. He supposedly knew Charlie Manson, and he was this hitman they would bring in to do specific murders, including the murder of Christine Freund. And that reminds me, Christine Freund was the secretary at Reynolds Securities, and then upcoming episodes we're going to go into more detail about what that means and what the murder motive was for her murder now what about this law firm that arliss was working at do you know much about them well yeah i mean i grew up in that area so i knew a lot of the actually knew them fairly closely so they were all people what Uh, i'm sorry go ahead i was just gonna say they were all they were kind it was kind of a high-powered small boutique firm of uh, ex-Stanford law school graduates. So, you know, they were very smart, uh, high-powered people, and it just makes it even, uh, that's another connection to Stanford that a lot of people may not even go into, is that these guys are new to campus as well, right? Well, and what kind, so, do you know what kind of cases they would handle there? I thought it was a lot of civil litigation. Um, I know that Klein became the mayor of Palo Alto at one point in the 80s or 90s. So, you know, the full name was Spaeth, Blaze, Valentine, and Klein. Klein became the mayor. Spaeth was the head of the PGA at one point, which is so, you know, these guys kind of worked in, or they operated in, a, you know, more a more uh, elite kind of uh, group. I knew that they had a major litigation having to do with the Black Hawk development on the East Bay. There was a real problem. It was a very expensive litigation involving million-dollar houses that were put on poor foundations. So, you know, they, they were doing... Their clientele was uh, the, were very wealthy, also well-educated people. They were not... It was the opposite of a kind of ambulance-chasing type law firm. And you have to wonder how somebody like Arliss Perry got a job there. Good question. But she was at the front, you know, so she was just one of these, like, a cute 19-year-old. But how she ended up there? It's a great question. It's a great well, question. people don't think but about she, this, but those receptionists, switchboard operators, they're not, they're not like janitors. They know, day to day, they know who's meeting whom, they know who's calling who, and they overhear a lot of conversations, and they get access to documents. Those are actually very carefully chosen employees for the most part, especially in a firm like that. There there are, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a crazy unrelated story. When I lived in Hollywood, I had a day job. I worked for a payroll processing company, and one of our clients was Warner Brothers Records. 
And it, but by another coincidence, the neighborhood I lived in, on days when there were, I would walk to work, because I didn't have any appointments outside the office and I lived very close, Prince's limo would go by every morning. He's a Midwestern kid. He gets up, he goes to work at 8 o'clock in the morning like everybody else. And I'd see his purple limo go by. And apparently he saw me. One day I'm waiting for this stoplight or something, and limo pulls out. And I kind of wave at him. You know, I'm a I'm a big fan. And he leaves the window down. And he says, "Good morning, Tom." And he drives off. And one other time I'm on the Sunset Strip with somebody. We're going to this nightclub, and he's go- cruising by in his limo. And he says, "Hi, Tom." I found out after he died, he was paranoid, and he had apparently seen me. At the Warner Brothers Records Company offices down in um, Culver City. And he insisted on knowing who everybody was who had ever came anywhere near him. And, of course, he had seen me on the street <laughs> several mornings. Okay. One morning he had Madonna passed out in the seat next to him. And that's how... So he asked around, who is that guy? And he found out my name and who I worked for. And he found out it was cool. And so he learned my name. These law, these firms like this, they're very careful. Sure, they want somebody gorgeous out front, right? Brings in customers. They're very careful. And I just wondered how she got that job. Because this young lady who would know who met who on what day and what maybe what they talked about. It's a good question. She, and also the she fact ends that up she murdered. Only been, right, she ends up murdered in a case. for two weeks, right? Yeah, she'd only been there. Yeah, right. She It was... She didn't move there at the beginning of the semester. She'd only been there, I think, less than a month. And so yeah. one of their employees gets murdered in a case that the local police authorities seem like they don't want to solve for 40-some-odd years. That's quite a coincidence, in my opinion. Yeah, no, it's there's some really suspicious elements about a lot of stuff that was going on around that time. I mean, I even knew the... Uh, I knew the um, priest who worked there, I think at the time of the murder, his name was um, Jack Duryea, D-U-R-Y-E-A. You can probably look him up. I think he's passed away, but he himself had a pretty sketchy background himself, like another sketchy character, because he was really a Catholic priest, but here he is at this non-denominational, Christian, ostensibly Christian church giving... Um, you know, non-denominational sermons or, or uh, services. I didn't know anything about the Masonic influence on that, um, on the Stamper Memorial Church. So, but I have to look into that. But, you know, the whole Stamper thing, the memorial is for the son of, of Stamper. That was really why the university was built. Right. It was built in memoriam for uh, their son who died of a fever, I think. Right. And this, see, this Father Duryea, may have easily been a closet Freemason. You're not supposed to be a Freemason if you're a Catholic priest, but lots of them are. And lots of them are. Well, that's an interesting that you bring that up, because even the the Rosicrucians and things like this, if they are, or even you, a follower of Crowley like Robert Anton Wilson, you are encouraged to join every occult group that will have you. So all these guys flip over between these groups. They're members of not just one group, but of everything, just like Crowley said that he could be buried by all the insignias that he could wear from all these cool groups. He was he was initiated into the Golden Dawn at, at Mark Mason's Hall, which was a Mason Masonic Hall, Masonic floorboard, white and black and white. You know, so uh, if you take that into the modern times around Arliss Perry, you don't know all the occult 
all the occult connections. Like even Manson himself was a Scientologist, right? Manson studied Scientology. All, according to Bugliosi's book, he knew everything about it. He and a lot and of other famous. Well, and speaking of which, one of the leaders of the Death Angels in the Zebra Murders, same prison as Manson, same prison shrink as Manson. Same Scientology, like there's guys who are inmates who are training these guys in Scientology. And both of them, when they get out, and both of these guys, when they get out of that prison, McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary, when they get out, they they go around committing murders, trying to start some apocalyptic race war that's going to destroy the world. It's fascinating. It really is fascinating when you put them next to each other. And I don't think I mean, Anson was out of jail for how long before the murder started. Was only out of jail for like two or three years. I can't remember. Right, and he gets out, and the first thing he does, he asks his parole officer for permission to go to Berkeley to live with a friend who's never been identified. And like one or two days after he arrives in Berkeley, he's down at the gates, uh, the entrance to the university, playing songs on his guitar, and he. He hollers, as we would say today. Supposedly, he hits on Mary Brunner. But when you get into it, it's obvious that Brunner might have been the one who's pulling Charlie's strings. And he might have been told, go to Berkeley and make contact with this girl. Um, we're going to do so many episodes on Manson. That's the rabbit hole of all rabbit holes. Um, well, it's really odd because it's so much like the DeFries story of the Symbionese Liberation Army, who got out of jail and went straight to Berkeley. <laughs> you so took the crazy. words right out of my <laughs> mouth because sure. you get Zodiac and that fizzles out. Zodiac and Manson going on at the exact same time. And, and I, like when I say exact same time, it's almost like those coded messages to the newspapers with the go signal and the stop signal. When that fizzles out, you get the zebra murders, the death angels. When that fizzles out, you get Symbionese Liberation Army. And then when that fizzles out, you get Son of Sam. And when that fizzles, you know, it just keeps, it's like they go from one operation to the next. Right, it's Operation Chaos, right? Could be, could very, could very well be. Um, or at least guys involved in Operation Chaos, maybe they're going rogue for their own reasons. Um, possibly. Mary Brunner. I mean, if, you, if you look, if you read Tom O'Neill's book about Operation Chaos and, and Manson, it's pretty clear that they could have arrested him for his whole um, his whole car car operation, but they didn't, you know? Oh, huge, he... Right up and even after the murders, he's getting picked up for one parole violation after another and turned loose. Yeah, that was crazy. Mary Mary Brunner got her degree from University of Wisconsin at Madison. That was where the FBI's headquarters of their COINTEL Pro, their deliberate attempt to infiltrate the new left so they could keep tabs on it, discredit it, and do all this stuff. She goes right. to Berkeley, gets a job at the library where she's working elbow to elbow with Abigail Folger, who's uh, working in the art museum there. Wow. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just the, incredible uh, yeah, things. Like, And it's pretty clear. I mean, Brad Shriver's book, uh, Where Revolutions End, it's pretty clear that DeFreeze was an operative, man. He also had privileges, too. I mean, Well, the oh, guy, uh, he hung around the Manson family. He was in the Gypsy Jokers motorcycle gang, which was this horror movie motorcycle gang, in San Francisco. 
what was that guy's name? He was an FBI plant in the Gypsy Jokers and then had infiltrated Charlie's gang. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Yeah, they're, they're informants and infiltrators all over this stuff. Yes, yeah, no, no doubt. Well, what else do we need to say about the murder of Arliss Perry at this point? Do we what what do what do we know about Bruce Perry? I know his father uh, was a dentist. A who, his father was a dentist who treated all the prisoners at the penitentiary there in Bismarck or wherever. But I think isn't his specialty like childhood trauma? Isn't that what he his psychological kind of uh, focus is? Is that right? That's what I. That's what I thought. And it's funny because one of the guys, this Howard Weiss, who is known to be friends with with Berkowitz, he and this Peter Shane, we don't know his real name, they're on film in Maryland at a at a wedding. Guess at a wedding. This Howard Weiss worked in the what we would call child protective services and welfare office in the Bronx. And we know that, for example. Morningstar Commune, Greenfield Ranch Commune. We know they were that those were like pedophile colonies, and teachers from there. And some of these, some of these yogis, some of these. I'm not saying every yoga class is run by a bunch of pedophiles. It's not what I'm talking about. But this um, Kundalini Yoga fad that sweeps California, an awful lot of them are pedophiles, and a lot of them. It is true, and we got some convictions in Napa County the last couple of years, infiltrating child protective services, the foster care system, these getting in there, taking kids away from families, and passing them around to their pedophile buddies. Wow, that's sick. That's incredible. So, I don't want to get too deep into that in this particular episode, but there's this stuff all over it. Um yeah, but, the, you know, Northern California was kind of the epicenter of a lot of that stuff. That's where people went to, you know. You had the university system. You had a lot of fringe ideas, a lot like Los Angeles. And Esalen, all these guys are filtering through Esalen, including, including Manson, Robert Anton Wilson, Leary, who had a shared a, shared a uh, room. I think it was Manson and Leary were in the same cell block. Or the same cell, actually. Um, yeah. So... You, I mean, that that was that era. And Manson has to be put in as his own ideological, you know, he had his own ideology that came a lot from the process, but also Scientology. He knew how to put people together, clearly. Well, and... But I think, yeah. to sum up Arles Perry, I would say that there's still a lot of questions. The, the, the death of Crawford didn't answer a lot of the questions. I think you're bringing up a lot of important things. Did you know that... Uh, Oh, what's the guy who, um, it wasn't LaVey, it is, uh, what, what was his cohort or branched out of the Church of Satan? His name is, uh, not Anton LaVey, the Temple of, have you heard of the, the Temple of Set? Right. Uh, uh, uh-huh. um, 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 names on the tip of my tongue, he was in the military, right, at the Presidio. He was in the army. Right. Uh, uh, right. It's like, Aquino. Michael Aquino. But Michael Aquino. Did you know that Michael Aquino's mother was a gifted academic and was one of the early graduates of Stanford University? No, I did not. That is fascinating. Yeah, so she was like a super genius, apparently. Graduated from Stanford at 19 sometime in the early 20th century. 
Well, apparently, the shooter of Paul Stein, one of the Zodiac murders, that shooter may have disappeared into the home of Michael Aquino. Wow. And there are others. There are plenty of others in that neighborhood. Um, yeah, we're, we're going to, we got so many. And it's just interesting that you, at first glance, this murder of Arliss Perry, whether it's satanically linked or not, what on earth could that possibly have to do with Son of Sam and Charles Manson? And as we're going to see on more and more episodes of the podcast, you've been a big help today. We've been chatting with William Ramsey of William Ramsey Investigates. He's been a big help to us getting into the murder and investigation into the murder of Arliss Perry. William, thank you so much, and keep up the good work. If you if you haven't, uh, uh, I got that right, right? It's William Ramsey Investigate. Is it on Stitcher? Is it on? Well, it's on all podcasts anywhere, but it just goes out all over the place. Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, YouTube. You can just look up William Ramsey Investigate. So thanks yeah. a lot, Tom, for having me. It's great to talk with you. Thank you very much, and keep up the good work. Overwhelming evidence clearly shows that Arliss Perry was an innocent lamb led to the slaughter, a beautiful young Christian angel, sacrificed as part of some demonic war between two rival satanic cult groups. Who on earth, or in hell, could possibly perpetrate such a horrific crime? We'll find out in the next episode.